You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Church, it's good to be here with you this morning. Um, Last week, Pastor Ryan kicked off our third summer of Summer of Psalms. We're getting a little late start here. We're into July, um, and we're planning to work from Psalm 38 to about Psalm 44 in this series. Um, David here in this psalm, it's a, it's a lament, um, like last week, um, it's a lament that is some way tied to his personal sin. There's a lot of stuff going on, but it's connected to his personal sin. And David here gives us a helpful but surprising example of what to do with the tossing emotions of our hearts. This isn't the first lament we've covered, and we're going to cover many more. Laments aren't one size fits all. In addition to that, Things that are heavy on our heart that we lament, it takes probably more than a week. And so things that were heavy on your heart last week, it's likely that they're, they're still there. You're still working through them. You're still wrestling through those things. So it's good for us to learn to regularly cry out to God again and again in our weakness so that he may provide instruction and comfort in our pain. If this sermon was Sesame Street, it'd be brought to you by the letter D. There are five words here, not counting David's name, that start with a D that we'll be covering in three parts this morning. Here they are if you want to know where we're going. So first, we see David's declaration. Second, we see David's increased distress and desperation. And last, we see David's prayer for deliverance from discipline. There's also a progression in this psalm, in the three sections. So David starts with a reflection on what he had said, the declaration. Then he gives a little commentary on how that went. And then he ends with an extended prayer at the end of the psalm. So before we get started, let's pray together here. Father, would you give grace now as we open your word? David wrote this psalm in a moment that was trying for him, but also so that it may be fruitful and give us instruction. There's complexity here. So help us see what is truly there, Lord. Apply it to our hearts this morning. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So part one here, David's declaration in verse one, his resolution he makes. He resolves to guard his ways in the presence of the wicked. So he says this, he recounts, he said, I said, I will guard my ways that I might not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. Two things stick out here. First, just clear, David's goal in this moment. He wants to honor God God, by guarding his ways and by guarding his words. He says, I will muzzle my mouth. I will put my hands over my mouth if need be so that I do not sin with my tongue. We can probably think of a lot of funny examples of in this in life, times that that's, that's happened um, or been near to happening. Um, and it's true, they're good, they're good examples. Um, but often in our life, there's many words we say that we regret that are far more deeper and real than the trite, simple examples. We can set things on fire and provo- provoke things with our words. It's too easy to be cynical, to subtly complain, to slide a little gossip in, uh, maybe even overt slander. 
many times, maybe every day, we can reflect back and say, I wish I would have guarded my words better. I wish I would have got my hands there before I said it. I can think of two in the last three days in my life of points where I said, I wish I, wish I had covered my mouth and have not spoken. And so David here says, I, I want to do whatever it takes here to not speak, to dishonor to God. I want to guard him with my ways and my words that can so easily provoke and inflame and sin. There are several times in the Psalms that David actually keeps silent, um, and there's slightly different circumstances each time. Later in this Psalm, verse 9, he mentions it again that he was silent. Uh, Psalm 32, so a few Psalms before this, he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. So for comparison here, Psalm 32, it says, He hid his sin. And in Psalm 39, it says, He seeks to keep his tongue from sinning. 32, the silence ate away at him. 39, his heart stewed and things got worse. The point of comparing here is David in this psalm, I think, has an honorable motive. We don't get the impression we get in Psalm 32 that he's hiding his sin, that he's covering it from God and it's eating away from him. We don't see clear unrepentant sin or any hiding here. And so I think David honorably wants to guard his mouth and his words. Psalm 13.3 says, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. I think David sought to do this, even when he prayed later in verse 8, do not make me a scorn or reproach of fools. So David sought to guard his words here. That's the first thing we see in his declaration. Second, the circumstances in which he wants to do this. The wicked are around David, and to some degree they see his distress. They may try to provoke him with their own words. They may speak against God in relation to their gods or their idols. They see something's off and it's all too tempting for them to speak a word towards David. Where where is your God? How is it going now? Can he not provide for you? Why are you so low and we may be so high? And so not only does he want to guard his words, but there's people around him that's provoking it. There's a situation here that especially he's like, whatever it takes to cover my mouth, I will guard it. He's not silent hiding his sin. He's silent so that he will not sin in the presence of the wicked here in this psalm. So David is seeking to be self-controlled, to guard his ways and his responses. And he was able to bridle his tongue, but he was unable to bridle his heart. It's the second thing we see here. David's increased distress and desperation. David, after recounting his resolve, saying, I will, I will guard it. I'll guard my ways. I'll guard my words so long as the wicked are in my presence, says this. So here's his little commentary. He said, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. So David here was able to hold his tongue for a moment, but it didn't resolve the issue. He may have thought, if I just keep silent, just keep quiet here for a moment, just get out of this situation, maybe they will leave me alone. Maybe if I keep my peace, my fortunes will truly and surely turn. But in his silence, the distress grew worse. Look at the kind of distress that he describes here, pulling from his prayer. There's external things here. 
So it seems like his distress is visible to the wicked around him because he talks about, I want to keep my tongue when they are there, when they're near me. Two, it's connected to possessions and comforts that he's lacking now. He mentions that mankind heaps up wealth and riches, likely to contrast his own situation. Internally, if not obvious, he says, my heart burned within me. Um, So there's external things going on here that are visible. There's internal things going on. And then there's just comprehensive descriptions here of what's going on. Verse 10, he says, I'm spent by the hostility of your hand as he prays. Verse 11 says, God is consuming what is dear to him, what gives him delight. And so as if distress needed a description, David gives it there in his prayer as he goes. There's external things, there's internal things, just comprehensive how he is feeling and thinking. And as this distress grows, again, David kept his mouth silent, but his soul does not keep silent. David mused and the waters churned. As David pondered, the coals of his heart were stirred and the fire burned hotter. As he stewed, the complexity of his heart and the complexity of the situation start to reveal themselves. So what might be things that David, David pondered here? Again, we're going to look to his prayer and grab a few things here that might be on his mind and his heart in this situation. So the initial occasion here is clear. He wants to guard his mouth so long as he's in the presence of the wicked. But there's more <laughs> to the story in his heart and in his circumstance. So here's seven things that he might ponder, and I'm sure there's many more. First, he just muses over his condition. He's been brought low, and the distress is still increasing. It's still continuing. In his silence, the situation gets worse. He may feel helpful, helpless. Despite his resolve, nothing has changed for the better. He said, if I keep silent, maybe for a moment, this will pass. But any patience he had hasn't profited, or at least profited yet. All his efforts are failing. So he may feel helpless in this moment. He may be tempted to envy the wicked. The wicked may accuse him unjustly and might make judgments that aren't true. Yes, the Lord is disciplining him, but the conclusions they draw might be all over the place and all across the board and completely unnecessary. And so he feels the wrestling here. The wicked who are unjust are making judgments and declaring things over me that probably aren't true. And God has left them alone, but he hasn't left me alone. And they may be speaking against you, God, should I open my mouth, Um, but I haven't. And so he may be tempted to envy the situation of the wicked, saying, in this moment, why? Why is it this way? Why am I so low and they are so high? I know I have sin here, But I seek to follow you, God. Why is it not working? He may be perplexed in that of God's justice. His effort to hold his tongue and to be righteous has resulted in discipline for other sin. But the wicked aren't. He may be thinking the wicked are at ease while the righteous suffer. This doesn't seem fair. Why do I feel such blows of pain when they seem to be doing fine? Yet, I'm seeking to honor you, God. And they don't think of you at all. And that stirs in his heart as he muses. He may be frustrated. He desires not to be the scorn of fools, 
but knows that his distress is also caused by his sin. So he's at fault, is discipline of the Lord. He's brought himself low. And so he's frustrated that he's here and it's his fault that he is here and can't seem to get himself out of it. And he may be confused. Man is but a breath, he says. My lifetime is nothing before you, God, yet you're disciplining me so heavily. He may be thinking like Psalm 8, what is man that you are even mindful of him? He waits on the Lord and he hopes in the Lord, yet he knows this pain comes from the hostility of God's hand. And it's a rebuke of discipline that's heavy on him. But God, I'm a mere breath. Why do you even give thought to correct and discipline me? I'll be gone like that. Yet your hand is heavy on me. And so he may be confused, perplexed. And last, he's, he's weary and broken. He's spent, he says. I'm just spent. He has confessed his sin, but he still feels the effects of it. The Lord's hand is still heavy on him. And he doesn't know when it might end. And so we've got the immediate situation here that people can see in his declaration. But below the surface, all kinds of things are going on. There's personal sin. There's enemies probably attacking unjustly. And then there's just suffering that he doesn't know even what bucket to put that in. And we can relate to the busyness of David's heart here. Our hearts are busy during times of suffering. We want to understand it. We want to solve it. And often in our musing, in our burning, we realize both are out of our grasp. All the purposes of God's discipline are beyond us. Some of them he may reveal, but all of them are beyond us. And at times, a mystery. And our minds are occupied and anxious about many things. They're swirling as well. They're burning as well. They're working hard to figure out how to get out of it and why we're even in it. So David's heart here muses and stirs. The fire burns hotter and hotter and brighter and brighter. Scripture says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And David feels it coming. His distress is increasing. His desperation is rising. David, for a season, could hold his tongue, but he couldn't bridle his heart. And God desires of all of our being to be in submission to him. Not just our mouths, but our souls, our hearts, our full being to be in submission to him. And so he didn't want just a quieted tongue, but a quieted soul. And a soul that is not quiet will soon be a tongue that isn't either. So David says here in verse 3, I mused, to summarize, I mused, the fire burned, then I spoke with my tongue. So David's going to speak here, but what is he going to say and to who? So first, let's take it in the negative here. He doesn't speak against the wicked. David could have given full vent to his tossing heart and sin by returning evil for evil. But he doesn't. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't try to prove them wrong or let them have it. In fact, when we get into his prayer here, The wicked are hardly mentioned again. That's the immediate presence, but they're hardly mentioned again when he opens his mouth to speak here. So he does not speak against the wicked as his heart is burning here and about to overflow. He doesn't either speak against God. So verse 9, the other place that he said he kept silent, he says, I am mute. 
I do not open my mouth, for it is you that have done it. David here is speaking to God, but is silent in a certain way. He's silent in any protest towards God being in the wrong. He said, when you discipline a man, you bring him low here, and he says, I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for I know that it is you, God, that have done it. And so he's not altogether silent, but he's silent there. He does not speak against God as his heart overflows out here. And so he doesn't speak against the wicked. They're hardly mentioned again. He doesn't speak against God. So when he does speak, he speaks to God against himself. In a desperate plea to God, he pushes back on his tossing heart. Rather than adding insult to injury with his words, he cries out to God and uses his mind and his mouth to actually steady the ship. And so here, third, we see David's prayer for deliverance from discipline. And so first here he said, here's my declaration. I wanted to hold my tongue in front of them. Uh, It seems like he did, uh, but he gives a commentary on it. And he's like, my heart burned within me. As I mused, it stirred, the fire burned. And then I must speak. I'm going to speak. It's going to overflow. And then I think in a really healthy and helpful way, he drives that energy towards God. Not against the wicked, not against God, but to God, actually against himself. And so three things he prays for here at the end. First, he asks that God would humble him. He prays in verse 4 through 6. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. In an amazing way, with his burning heart, David asked the Lord to humble him. Three times here he says, surely about the fleetingness of mankind, his, his smallness, his temporalness, his shortness. He says, I know how small and fleeting I am. Help me understand it, God. And in one sense, this is just a lesson for every single human. Whether you have thought of God or not, you ought to look at the universe and see how small you are. Your life is but a breadth in all of history. The significance is as of nothing in all of the universe. And so this is a lesson that's just common to all of us. It just slaps us in the face if we're looking for it. Um, The more amazing thing is the other side, that God actually gives thought to us. Um, As David Mews is here in perplexed, he says, why do you even give thought to us here? Um, So there's no special lesson here. You just look around and ought to see the smallness of yourself and be humbled just by God's creation, just by the volume of the billions of people that exist and the length of time and thousands of years and but a breath. Um, So that lesson should be obvious here. But what David sees beyond that is the surprising but amazing twist here. David here sees that his heart is in turmoil because he is too high in his own eyes. His heart is in turmoil because he is too high in his own eyes. The temptation here to be in distress, to be brought low, to be wrestling through these things, the wicked are enemies in his presence. You have to say, God, you're realizing you're bringing me too low. You need to lift me up. 
Yet David here says, my heart is all over the place because I'm too high in my own eyes, not too low. So David here, who might already be, likely is, more humble than the rest of us, asks God to drive him lower, help him understand the measure of his days. Even in his weakness and distress, he sees himself too highly. His heart was hot, but he did not want it to become a hardened heart. And what an example David is to us here. As the, his heart stirs and swirls, he drives it in the right direction. It overflows not in sin, but towards God. In praise and in prayer and crying out, he channels probably sinful stirrings towards God for help. How often do we do that? <laughs> Versus how often do we speak against others, explicitly or subtly, and against God in any affliction or discomfort we face? We are so f- quick to question or blame or doubt at the first sign of trouble. We look to all kinds of places except inward, where David goes. Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book 350 years ago about Christian contentment. In it, he does a great job diagnosing the disruption of our hearts in suffering and in God's discipline. Here are just a few things he says that are unfortunately far more fitting of our hearts in contrast to David's. When speaking about God's work in discipline, Jeremiah says a few things here. First, he says, this is the first lesson that Christ teaches any soul, self-denial, which brings contentment, which brings down and softens a man's heart. You know how when you strike something soft, it makes no noise. But if you strike a hard thing, it makes a noise. So with the hearts of men who are full of themselves and hardened with self-love. If they receive a stroke, they make a noise. But a self-denying Christian yields to God's hand and makes no noise. When you strike a woolsack, it makes no noise because it yields to the stroke. So a self-denying heart yields to the stroke and thereby comes to this contentment. He goes on to say, Carnal men and women do not know their own spirits, and therefore they fling and vex themselves at every affliction that befalls them. They do not know what disorders are in their hearts, which may be healed by these afflictions. And last, he says, a man who is little in his own eyes will count every affliction as little and every mercy as great. In other words, the big egos of men and women make big noises. Prideful hearts either protect themselves or pity themselves, but they never speak to God against themselves. They are too rigid and fragile to yield to the disciplining stroke from a gracious God. Psalm 17.10 says, A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a a hundred blows into a fool. And David here wants to gain understanding. That's the very reason he's crying out. He feels the blows and doesn't want to be the hard-hearted fool. One very important clarifier here. A quieted heart and a silent heart are not the same thing. A quieted tongue and a silent tongue are not the same thing. A quieted tongue and soul can 
and will cry out to God, but it will not contend with him. It may ask and express all kinds of things, and it should. God wants to hear from us, and he, we have his ear in, hum, in humble prayer and pleas to him. And so this isn't a, I hold everything. He's saying, I, I hold blame towards you, God, and I actually speak against myself. Bring me low. Root my pride out of here. And so a quieted heart and tongue does not mean a silent one. He wants to hear from us. In fact, David might be in so much distress here because when he said, I'll be silent before my enemies, before the wicked, he was silent everywhere. And he should not have been. Maybe he should have came to God sooner and it wouldn't have stewed as high. And so a silent, a quieted heart here, a peaceful heart is not the same as one that speaks nothing and never reaches out to God. He wants to hear from us. He is there. We have his ear when we come humbly to God. And so that's what David is doing here. He's coming to God. He's crying out to him. This is the first thing we see in his prayer here at the end is he wants the Lord to bring him lower, counterintuitive, but right. Second, we see he acknowledges the loving but hard hand of God. Verse 11, he says, when you discipline a man for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. He sees God stripping away all the things that he delights in. Whether these things are idols in David's life or they're just necessary strokes to get his attention, God is doing it. He's removing all other joys in David's life to teach him to find joy in God alone. God's jealous and protective love drives us to find joy in him. And it feels hard, but he drives us to find joy in him. So consider these examples. When a kid is starting to get lost in a massive crowd at the mall, is it right for their parents with a forceful hand and a stern voice to command them to return to them? Or when they disobey, we don't give them candy or toys or TV to comfort them. They need to be reconciled to us so that they may be able to feel real comfort from us and real restoration. Things that a toy, a TV, a sucker can't give. It's hard love. That's the comfort they want. But the comfort they need is the reconciliation and the restoration of their parent. And if it's right for a parent to love this way, how much more God who we were made for and is the source of all joy. He pulls us towards himself because only he can satisfy. Hebrews says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful root, peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. I fear some who are under the loving discipline of God, never look at themselves. They feel the piercing arrows of God, but they attribute them to their enemies. Or they make enemies for them. And they don't see it as a loving and gracious shot from their God. And the result is, because they don't see its discipline from God, they are not trained by it. And therefore, we'll never receive the peaceful fruit of righteousness that comes from it. 
they never receive the quieted soul. They are waiting to be exalted, but fail to first be humbled. Remember 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6. We were there a few weeks ago. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. This is what David is doing, humbling himself, crying out, and waiting for the Lord. This is a hard word, a hard word here, but there's glory in it. There's life in it. There's eternal life in it to those who receive it. And so there's much hope in the discipline of the Lord. And he is near. There's a depth of grace from Jesus in the low times that are not found anywhere else. The grace of God may reign in the mountaintops and there's a blessing in the enjoyment of good times. But the grace that reigns above also trickles into streams that flow into rivers that pour into oceans at the bottom. And the ocean of grace has a depth of mercy and comfort that those hiking above do not know of. God is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. In the losing of our lives, there's a gaining of it. In the humbling, there comes exaltation. From tribulation comes peace. The way to more grace and blessing is down, not up. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He is for the humble. To have God on your side in any circumstance is better than any comfort and his heavy hand or his fierce face. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. There's a depth of mercy and comfort at the bottom that we never experience at the top. And last here, as David closes in his prayer, he trusts and hopes in God. It says in verse 7, And now, O Lord, what do I wait? My hope is in you. Verse 12, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Behold, hold not your peace at my tears. For I'm a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. This is the only psalm I could find that David uses that phrase that says, I'm a sojourner with you. I think the humility is setting in. He's saying, I'm a sojourner. I'm just a breath on this life. But with you, God, I'm a sojourner with you. I'm a traveler with you. I'm, you are my refuge and strength. I'm with you in this. You give thought and mind to your people. And so I'm a sojourner with you. He prays and trusts and hopes in God here. David here at the end of the psalm is still perplexed. The situation's not solved. He tearfully cries out for help. And his heart seems to wander a bit. But he shows in his heart that he's being humbled and stilled and reaching out to God. His prayer is not the most linear thing, but it's a lot more linear and a lot more smoothed over than the tossing of his burning heart a few verses later. The ship is starting to steady as he reaches out to God and pleads out and hopes in God. He trusts God while still in the mess at the end of this psalm. And so let us wait ourselves and trust in Jesus.
and look for him, to him for hope. The one who could bridle both tongue and soul. The perfect one. The sinless son of God. Yet, even in that, he humbled himself by becoming man. And humbled himself in obedience to the point of death. Even death on a cross. He bore the full stroke of God's hostility. So that we may live and live eternity. Eternity is at stake in understanding this. Be humbled before the Lord. He will not give us to fleeting joys. He loves us too much. Our hearts have illnesses that we know not of. And who knows what Jesus aims to heal through these afflictions. So make him your hope. It is the safest place to put it. In Jesus. Make Jesus your hope. In the mess. The mess may be the very thing that brings you to consider Jesus when you would not have otherwise. There's a depth and grace and mercy at the bottom that those up top do not see. So would you pray with me? Christ, you are an amazing example that you took the full blow of God's wrath so that any strokes we take, Lord, are for healing, not for ultimate wounding, not for ultimate breaking. You are our God. You are our refuge. You are beyond us, Lord. Would we humble ourselves and come to you? Even here in this psalm, it's not clear how much of this is attached to David's sin. It may be very little, Yet he puts the focus on you, God, and who you are, and on his sin he wants to purge out. He wants to praise you, Lord. He wants his heart to be cleansed and clean. He wants to understand your ways, Lord. So thank you for Jesus who saves us and makes us new so we may be with you, Lord, and that your heavy hand moves towards redemption and not ultimate punishment. And it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we turn to the table this morning, we share in this table as a reminder of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. He was wounded for our transgressions and suffered for our sins. Not his, ours. Christ died so that our wounds in turn and in time would heal. The bread and the cup are primarily for the members of City's Church. But if Jesus is your treasure, if you are a humble sojourner with him, then we welcome you to eat and drink together with this morning. But if you're not there yet, we ask that you let the elements pass, lest you proclaim a faith you do not yet have and bring judgment on yourself. His body is the true bread and his blood is true drink. Let us serve you.